I'm going to use this space today to ask for a small favor. I recently started a journalism Substack at perlman.substack.com. It's weekly. It's all about writing and the business of writing. And it's totally free. I do it for the same reason I do this, an enjoyment of highlighting the business that has given me so much joy. So if you have a chance and don't mind, please consider subscribing. Again, it's only once a week and it's free. It's a total labor of love. Thank you. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Chris Herring, the Sports Illustrated basketball writer, a true gentleman of the business, and author of a terrific new book, Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990 New York Knicks. It drops today. This is episode number 243. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Chris. First of all, thank you so much for doing this. Is a, actually, I was thinking about this. This is kind of interesting because you and I have DM'd many times. But I don't think we've ever met face-to-face until right now. Am I going to offend you? And you're going to be like, what are you talking about? We had dinner in Milwaukee and... <laughs> I don't think I don't think we have met. I'm yeah. almost positive we haven't met. Yeah, so this nearly is nearly positive. And um, you just told me a story, but I feel like I want to get into this. Everyone has these moments when you write a book. Most people do, and something awesome happens early on, where you're like, "Holy shit, that just happened!" Or that just, like my wife wrote a book, and Kristen Bell raved about it. Well, that was a big moment for her. Sure, of course. You, uh, Spike Lee. Post on Instagram about your book before the book even comes out. How did Spike Lee get a copy of your book? How did this happen? So apparently, unbeknownst to me, unbeknownst to Spike, probably, uh, he has an assistant. I'm not sure exactly what the nature of what sort of assistant she has for him, but an assistant who I went to high school with, um, you know, and I'm not from New York. Neither is my classmate. Um, Spike obviously is and lives out there. So she's in New York. And I guess... We follow each other on social media and, you know, I'm promoting my book, obviously, now that it's on the way out. And she's seeing me post constant retweets of people holding the book, you know, people promoting the book, different things. And so she keeps seeing it repeatedly. And so I guess it led her to ask Spike Lee, you know, have you heard about this? Because obviously anyone that knows Spike Lee knows that that's like his heart and soul is the Knicks. And so she asked, did you know anything about this? Have you read it already? Do you have it? And Spike says, what book are you, Nick's book? And, you know, he's probably thinking like Nick's book, like how come I don't know about that? And uh, then kind of, you know, I don't know how nicely or rudely that demanded that she go find him a copy of this book that, you know, technically is not out at the time that she's doing it. Um, She, she called my book publisher and said, you know, I work for Spike Lee. Is there by chance, do you guys have a copy that you could give me? And they're like, oh Yeah. So they handed her a copy. She walks out. Um, and then, you know, I, you know, I'm in the middle of the day. I, I just see people blowing me up about the fact that Spike Lee's posted a picture of this book on his Instagram, you know, does millions of followers on Instagram and calls me brother hearing of all things, which I, anyone that knows me knows that Malcolm X will forever be one of my favorite movies. And, you know, Denzel Washington portraying Malcolm X. You know, that that film is always going to be one of my favorites, but also that Malcolm X is just my favorite 
figure in like American history period and probably always will be. I, I've said before, if I ever get a tattoo, I don't have any. The only things I would ever consider, like maybe images of my parents who I lost or Malcolm X. That's it. And so the idea that Spike Lee wants to talk, uh, you know, or wants to connect or wants to promote my book or anything is just beyond me. And then Spike made a point to call me the next day. It's just beyond. I'm still kind of blurry about it. It's just nuts. Nuts. This is kind of awkward because you told me you were going to get a Jeff Perlman tattoo. And I'm just. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry, Jeff. You're not on the list anymore. <laughs> Damn. Um, all right. So I want to say, first of all. This book makes me ridiculously happy. It truly does. Number one, it's a money spot for a guy from New York. Um, people think when you're born in the 70s, you're an 80s person, but you're really a 90s person because the 90s is your era when you sort of come of age as a sports fan and you get to know the personalities and you start covering sports if you're a sports writer. And this is right in my turf. The, the thing I love, though, like love, 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 is the number of interviews you did, like my whole thing when I report books is give me the guy who is on the end of the bench. And that guy's just as valuable as Charles Oakley or Anthony Mason. Sure. The number of times you have Greg Butler, Brian Quinnett, Rolando Blackman, Derek Harper, you know, guys who kind of came and went um, guys. I've never heard of guys who were there for a year, just the level of reporting. Then you'll talk about some guy, you'll talk about Charles Smith at Pitt. And you'll interview someone from his pit days. You don't just go for old clips. You actually find people from the pit. It is so well reported. It almost made me want to cry with happiness. I swear to God, sometimes I read a book and I'm like, this is so well reported. It just Man. freaking warmed my heart. And that's the number one compliment I can give you. It is so <laughs> well reported. It's the best. Bravo. And th thank you. I mean, it, like you said, we haven't met face to face before. But I'm looking... I'm going to just go ahead and do it and see if you can see it from here. Stop kissing my ass, Chris. Uh, you probably can't see the books. You can see the mess on my, uh, what do you call it? But I've got, you, you've written nine books now. I guess you've written 10, but nine have come out so far. I've got, I think I've got seven of them here on the shelf right here. And you were, I mean, you know this. Maybe you don't know this. Um, I said no to this project first. This was not my idea. Um an agent approached me about doing the book. It was not my idea. And I said no to it basically twice. Um, the thing that prompted me to say yes to it in part was you. Um, because your projects basically have been like this too, where you weren't, you were alive, but you weren't really of age to have covered something. You weren't in front of it. Um, but you just bust your ass and you go back and you retrace every step and you read every clip and you talk to every person. And that was essentially what you told me was necessary to do a good job on something like this. And I'll be honest, you said all that. And it made me want to say no a third time to doing the book <laughs> because it's like, man, I don't know that I actually want to work that hard, but, but you also gave me advice about how to start a process like this. You buy every single media guide there is and you just bust your tail and you talk to everybody that's willing to talk to you. Um, and it, it, it pays off. It, it pays dividends, but I, I just want to thank you for that. And, um, no, to, to hear you, that you enjoyed it, that you, that you read anecdotes and that it makes you smile. And, uh, that means the world because I, I just think the world of your reporting and I know how hard you work to do what you do. So that means a lot. Thank you so much. Wait. So, okay. 
It's very interesting. I just had a talk today with a former NBA night writer named Kerry Eggers, and he wrote a really good book called Jailblazers about the trailblazers of the J.R. writer Rashid Wallace. Sure. I've got that one on myself too. Excellent book. And in a way, a sibling book to yours, because there are these teams with these really dynamic characters and they were high profile teams, but they didn't live, they didn't win anything. And the trap with those books is, well, who, I mean, that is a trap. They didn't win anything. So when you're saying no, no, initially to this idea, your agent says, here's an idea. You're like, no, here's an idea. No. Is it concerned? Look, these guys didn't win anything or is it deeper than that? For me, it wasn't even that. It was just, you know, I, I explained this a little bit in the acknowledgements. It was a couple things. One, you know, I don't know when you first knew you wanted to do a book or, if, you know, if, if you always wanted to do one, if you got support, you wanted to do one. For me, I think I've wanted to do one for a while, but I, I, I figured it would be on my terms. I figured it would be my idea. I figured, you know, I'm a beat writer. I started as a beat writer, at least, you know, I covered football for a year in the NFL. And then I started covering the Knicks and the NBA. And my thought was like, you know, I'll, I'll be that guy that does the, the story of a season after the team I cover wins a championship because you have a relationship with the players, you know, you're kind of in the catbird seat. You can, you, you're, you're close up to it. It's easier that way. Um, but you know, th those books come and go, they're kind of fleeting. It's weird. They're memorable probably for that fan base, but there's advantages and there's probably a lot of disadvantages to doing something in real time. Uh, you and I are both really friendly with Miriam. Fader. And uh, I, I'm still in awe of the honest book she did just because doing something in real time, there's so much stuff that doesn't really come out that people don't get comfortable to speak about until a lot of years, a lot of years later. And so I think you and I probably both benefited from that. You kind of, the, the, the circle widens because you realize more people that maybe weren't public at the time that then it comes out later that they had some connection to somebody. I wasn't interested at the time because I always figured I was going to do something that was in the moment a team I'm covering. And then beyond that, you know, I had lost my dad a couple months before this. Um, I was teaching. I was stressed. I was, you know, probably depressed to some extent. And I just was kind of like, I had just told myself, I'm just going to kind of breathe and just kind of find myself again after ha having gone through a lot of stuff. Um, and so then, you know, and I feel like every time in my life, I kind of tell myself, I'm just going to exhale a little bit. Uh, I get asked to do something else. And granted, this was a blessing that somebody asked me to do it. But I just was kind of in my mind. I was like, I, I don't I don't think this is the right timing for this. Like, I just I'm, I need time to myself. And, you know, I thought about it more. And like my dad was a professor. He published a lot of books and he would send me book ideas all the time. Uh, he really wanted me to work on a book at some point because he thought I had it in me. And I would always say, I don't like that idea. That <laughs> you're not suggesting a good idea. It wasn't his job to do that, but you know, what better way to honor somebody? And, you know, I used the first page of my dedication to my parents, you know, because I think they would have been really proud. So um, that, that was why I was saying no, it was just I, the time in my life, but look, you do this and other people have done this. You're married. You've got children. I don't have those things. So this was probably a much better time to uh, to do it than when I've got stuff that makes it probably more difficult to write one. Do you find, was there a, uh, was reporting a book and digging yourself deep, 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 hardcore in a book, um, did it all take your mind off of the sort of down, not only 
everything we're going through just in America, but your own personal tragedies, et cetera. Did you find a good distractor or is that, is that incorrect? I think it took me a while. No, not at first. Uh, the, the pandemic was just, it was weird. I mean, it, you know what I struggle with? I think you and I both probably struggle with this, or maybe you're better at it than I am. We, a lot of times when you and I will DM, it'll be three in the morning, <laughs> at least where I live. Where uh, you are. Probably one yeah. in the morning where you are. Yeah. Um, and I think I find it easier to work at that hour because I know other people are sleeping and it's kind of like everybody else's mind shuts off. So it's like, okay, it would be like if everything's busy in the house and you can't focus, but then it, it gets quiet and you can. Mm -hmm. So, you know, nighttime happens and it's like, okay, I'm the only one up working so I can get stuff done. I'm not distracted. There's something about COVID where everybody's working from home. So everybody knows they have access to you and everybody's just kind of calling and everything's happening. It's weird when everybody else is home at the same time, because it's like the world wasn't shutting off. There wasn't like that nighttime that we get normally because everybody was essentially at nighttime. Everybody was home. So I, I was kind of unsettled for like the first couple of months of the pandemic. It, it certainly was a net boost for me, um, but not at first at all, because it was weird. And I think a lot of people probably felt a certain anxiety about it. I'm used to working from home, but that was a weird period of time. The other thing that was challenging too, I didn't take a leave of absence. Like I, I was still in my day job. And so they were asking me, I cover sports normally you know, for, uh, at the time for 538, but they were like, all right, well, there's no sports. So could you, you're one of the few people on the staff with like reporting experience as opposed to polling experience, as opposed to, you know, whatever it is experience. Uh, we could really make use of your just, you know, your reporting skills and you can write feature stories on people that are really struggling due to the pandemic. So I had to kind of pivot and do new stuff for three or four months during the pandemic on top of just trying to write the book and trying to research and report the book still. Um, so it was, it was difficult, you know, and still having to pay some attention to the NBA in the middle of a paused season. But uh, no, after a while, it did help, I, I think to have some time that was downtime, but it was still stressful. I, <laughs> I had been in the middle of a relationship. The relationship really soured during the pandemic, in part because I started throwing myself so far into the book that the girlfriend was like, "I'm, you know, did you forget that I'm here?" And then kind of I did. Um, but uh, but yeah, ap after a while, I, I settled into a rhythm, and it was really helpful to have the world slow down a little bit. You basically broke up with your girlfriend for uh, Brian Quinette and Charles Oakley. Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. I don't yeah. even think there's a way to debate that. Honestly. <laughs> um, all right. So you're writing about this team. You did not grow up a Knicks fan in the nineties. You probably don't even care that much about the Knicks in the nineties. Your agent has said you should do this. You've twice rejected it. You finally decide to do it. You buy the media guides. Um, are the guys on the Knicks, the old Knicks receptive to this idea? So the very first ones were, um, and I wonder whether you go through this, it, the way I did this for mine, I, I started from the very bottom. I wanted the people that I was most intrigued by were the people that try out for the, not try out, but they get invited to training camp. Um, they get cut three days in. Mm -hmm. I start with basically the least tenured of the guys that don't even make the team. Um, because I figured they're going to have the most vivid memories of everything because they only dealt with Patrick Ewing twice. So both times were memorable. Um, the first guy that I felt like gave me like an anecdote that was gold was someone that was on the team for one year. You know, he was kind of a guy that they expected to get cut. He didn't get cut. 
Um, he was a center. His name was Patrick Eddy. And you and I talked about this even before the book came out. The anecdote that I basically opened the book with is a fight that Anthony Mason and Xavier McDaniel get into. Um, and that story's been told before. And and you've done this, you know, even with your, your Lakers book, your Phil uh, Kobe Shaq book. You know, sometimes you have an anecdote that's been told before, but you can get deeper into it mm-hmm. by doing the reporting around it. And that's there's nothing wrong with that. And so in my case, um, Patrick Getty and I are talking. I imagine no one's ever really sat and asked him about the Knicks before from those years. He was only there for one year. People probably don't even know he's a Nick, a former Nick. Knicks fan probably don't know that. Um, but I asked him what he remembered about the fight. Did he remember that fight between McDaniel and Mason? He was like, I'm the reason they fought. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he tells me, and he walks me through the story, and I'm like, holy shit. Like, okay, so that's one piece of information that probably, I'm sure the players don't even remember that. Or if they even saw it. Like, if they weren't on the end of the floor, they would know that. But this is a guy that tells me that, that tells me a blow-by-blow of the day that he went to Anthony Mason's funeral and how he didn't have the money to fly there. There's a guy that was in the NBA for one year. That's not long enough to get a pension from the NBA. He's on hard times. It's snowing. There's a blizzard the day of the funeral. This man lives in Milwaukee, so he's driving from Milwaukee to New York and asks his daughter to go with him in case he gets sleepy. And he's speeding the whole way there because he was running late because he had a late shift at work. So he's speeding all the way from Milwaukee to New York. He ends up getting ticketed. He ends up getting pulled over a second time for speeding and explains to the officer why he was going so fast. The officer checks his story basically to figure out that Anthony Mason had died and lets him go and basically says, just be careful, sir. Um, I don't want you to get hurt trying to get there, but, you know, God bless you. And he was like, I wouldn't miss the funeral for the world because Anthony Mason was this to me and this to me. He was my best friend on the team. This was the guy I went out and tried to hit on women with. This was the guy that, you know, if you would have told me that he slept with more women than Wilt, I would have believed you because he made a personal point to show me each of the women and knock on my door just so that he could see, you know, that I could see the women that he was bringing home because we had essentially a competition to see who could bring home more women. Like, those sorts of stories, you would never get that story from John Starks. You would never get that story from Patrick Ewing. The only person that could tell you a story and do it in a way where they have nothing to lose because they're not in the public eye because they don't have a job at Georgetown coaching the team is a Patrick Eddy. So starting from the bottom and starting from those guys, like that was probably the first guy I talked to. Where I was like, the whole conversation felt like a holy grail to me. Awesome. And you, you talk to dozens of people like that if not more than that because you start with those folks and these are people that have never been quoted on any of the stuff and it's just a treasure trove and i know that's how you approach your work and um it's probably why i enjoy reading your book so much your your books so much because there's just it's like this untapped it would be like mining for gold literally It, it would be like if california had never been mined for gold and you discover it it's just there like, yeah. that's how this feels. That's exactly how it feels to me. The other thing about finding a guy like a Patrick Eddy is odds are very strong. He is not in contact with the Knicks or many of the Knicks. So he is not like John Starks has ties, professional ties to the Knicks. He's not going to say anything. Right. Believe it. Patrick Eddy doesn't care. He's working his nine to five and he's just making a living. So that guy's in. in exactly. Um, exactly. All right. So I feel like every book I've written, a question I've been asked is, well, who who's carrying this book? And what they usually mean is like, who's the larger than life character who's carrying this book? Brett Favre is carrying a book. Bonds is carrying a book. You had Aikman Emmett, Irvin, uh, Aikman Emmett, Michael Irvin carrying a book. And the Knicks, 
from the outside, you'd be like, well, Ewing wasn't really a dynamic character. Pat Riley was, but he was a coach. Um, were you worried about that at all? And did you find that to be an obstacle at all? Not really. Um, a little, but not really. And it's funny. You probably don't remember this. When we talked, um, I wanted your advice on the process and whether or not I should even do this. And you, we talked a little bit about how you chosen to do what you did, but you always, you, you swing for the fence, man. <laughs> the, the Cowboys, the, the Lakers, the Showtime Lakers, the, the Kobe Shaq Lakers. Um, I mean, the 86 Mets, man. This is the same thing. Uh, it's a huge topic. The 90s Knicks is a huge topic. Yes, but the difference is, and this is what you told me, and it wasn't it wasn't wrong. What you told me is that there, in your opinion, you, you felt like there the the Knicks book was kind of missing the big star, uh, and it's probably why. I wouldn't say that's why. I would say the reason is they've never been written about, really. Um, certainly not at length the way that those other dynasties that you've covered have been is because they didn't win. I think that's the first. Like if they'd won, I think there would have been multiple things done on them at this point. Even if they just won once, I don't think it would have needed to be a, you know, two, three rings or anything like that. And you're right. Ewing is a guy that, you know, I didn't go into detail about it in the book, but like, I mean, he was dwarfed in terms of endorsements by Michael Jordan. Everybody was, but Ewing was, Ewing got the biggest deal in, con in contract in NBA history because people thought that that was the sort of potential he had coming out of Georgetown. Like he was the most dominant college player in years. Uh, so he got a bigger deal than Michael Jordan did. People thought that he could be better than everybody at one point. I thought he'd be the next Bill Russell, you know, winning championships every year. But he was so quiet and, you know, there was no endorsing to really be done around that. Uh, and I think you'll probably remember pretty famously. I mean, he had his own shoe, his own brand. He was probably one of the only players that really had Ewing sneakers. Like, I, I still don't know like what company that would have been tied to other than just Ewing. Uh, but anyway... So, yes, they didn't really have – I mean, he was the biggest star they had, and he was the only star they had. Starks, Mason, Oakley were all all-stars one time exactly. Mason wasn't even an all-star with the Knicks. Um, so they were short on star power. I think to answer your question most directly, Riley was the star of the book as far as I was concerned. And it was interesting because my agent at one point, when we were kind of cycling through potential book covers, he said, are you sure you want Riley – on the cover and I gave him like the most brazen look. I was like, what, what kind of question is that? I was like, why are you asking that? He's like, well, I mean, he was only there for four years. And I was like, okay, he was there for four years. He left in the most controversial fashion possible. Um, and beyond that, even once he wasn't there, he was the coach of their new arch nemesis yeah. for those four years. And they played every year after that. And what I would say, maybe not, probably isn't thought of as the league's biggest rivalry in the late 90s, but you weren't going to find two teams that hated each other more than that. They hated each other. Yeah. So I was like, no, I mean, he, he is absolutely, like, to me, he is the central figure in this book because even when he's not there, he's still, like, at the top of the list of the people that matter to this franchise, even if it's through hatred. So to me, he was the central character in the book, which is rare because he is a coach. Um but his DNA still flows through the veins of that organization through Van Gundy. The, the players still had affection for him in some cases. So I wasn't worried about that because I thought, I think Riley's fascinating um, in a weird way. And I had somebody reach out to me. <laughs> God bless him. He was like, I, 
I want you to send me a book and sign it, but I want you to inscribe it to Pat. I'm going to give it to him, someone from the Heat organization. I was like, are you sure he's going to want this book? Because <laughs> I don't think he, like, I mean, I, I don't think I was mean or, like, you know, somehow embellishing anything. But like, I don't think it's the most flattering portrayal. Maybe Pat will like it. Uh, I was like, if you really want me to sign it to him, I will. But, um, no, I, I think he was a central character. I think if I had to rank order the players, Mason's probably the most interesting guy. Uh, and I think there's a lot of fascination around him and a lot of curiosity around him because he's passed away. Um, and he's a pretty notorious guy. But you are right that Ewing uh, Ewing doesn't fit that superstar role the way you normally would like a Magic or, you know, even a Michael or something like that. And I think the the weirdest thing about my book that's really not traditional at all, you generally write at length about the superstar first. Uh, and my Ewing chapter is almost at the back of the book. It's like yeah. chapter 17. And my editor asked me, like, what are you doing? Basically, not that rudely, but like, he's like, why'd you do that? And I was like, I thought about it. And I was like, Ewing wasn't the new character when my book starts. He'd already been there for five years. He actually thought about leaving. And I do touch on that at the beginning of the book. But to me, I wanted to focus on where it was all coming apart for him, where it was all kind of shattering and falling apart. And at that, to me, I felt like you could learn more about his story. And I could give you the background on his story better through that chapter than starting the book with him. Riley was the new kid on the block when the book started and he was the central star in the book as far as I was concerned that kind of over went through the most transformation and the most craziness and the paranoia so that was why I did it that way but it, it, it that was the challenge just trying to figure out where to place Patrick's chapter and why and I, that was why I did it that way so one thing I've certainly gone through is having people uh, unwilling to talk throughout my career unwilling 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 um when you start this book are you presuming Riley and Ewing just by reputation will not talk to you? And how much of an effort do you make? <sighs> well, I talked to you about that. I remember uh, about Riley and trying to get Riley. Um, you know, I didn't presume it. Uh, I also had somebody tell me, and it was pretty good advice. I think it was Ian O'Connor who said this to me. He was like, you just promised the moon and the stars when you go into these meetings with these books, as far as who you're going to be able to get, you know, they, you never go in and tell them you can't because what's the benefit in that? Like you try and if you don't get them and if you don't get them and you're you or you're, you're me, you still make every effort to get every single person around them mm -hmm. to tell the story that way. And every bit of research that you can do. So I, I did do that. I spent four days in Schenectady where Pat grew up and um, spent, you know, with, with the people he grew up with, the kids he grew up with and stuff like that. Not kids, but something like that. went to his house I spent time talking to the people that actually have gotten to Riley that have gotten them to open up. Um, I know you're, well, I don't know you're friends with them, but I know you've had Mark Kriegel on before. He's one of the few guys that's gotten Pat to open up. I tried to reach out to him, uh, reached out to Wright Thompson, who's probably the last real person to really profile Pat mm -hmm. on a larger scale and asked him like, you got any secrets? You got any tips? And he did give me one. Uh, I don't know that I effectively did it, but, I made every effort to get Pat, even when I didn't get him, I sent him a list of questions that I felt like, you know, if I were Pat, I would want someone to give me an opportunity to answer. Um, but I, I tried my hardest. I got, I did reach out to him directly. I thought I had a little bit of a, a, a catch, you know, when I kind of threw the bait out there and then it just turned out not to be, but I tried. And then the thing with doing, if I'm being really honest, man, I tried that too. I met Patrick here in Chicago. Uh, the lottery was here a couple of years ago during the Zion Williamson draft. And uh, so the Knicks sent him as their representative to kind of sit on the dais. And 
Uh, you know, I always feel like it's better to introduce yourself in person. Um, I'll be really honest that I think, quite frankly, as a black man, a lot of times when you are talking about trying to write about black people, that they are a little bit more warm with regards to seeing someone is pretty rare that you have black people writing books on other black people, quite frankly, at least in the NBA as far as it's concerned. So it goes a little bit further. So I, I thought it would be useful to meet Patrick and, you know, I'm going to be doing this book. I'd really like to talk to you. You kind of were the defining player that they had of that era. So he, you know, he's completely warm about it. He told me, you know, no problem with that. Uh, go through Georgetown and we'll set you up. So I did that. Georgetown's responsive. They're giving me dates and, you know, saying, well, it can't be now because the season's in full swing. Patrick's obviously very busy. As soon as the season's over, we got you. Okay. So pivot slightly. You read enough of the book to know that I was writing about everything, the even the formation of the dance team. But Patrick later had an extramarital affair with the team dancer. And I wasn't just trying to talk to people from the dance team because of that. Obviously, I want to know a little bit more about that. But I also, like, the dance team was formed during the 90s. So I wanted to know the backstory of that. So I talked to the manager of the dance team from those years, the person that kind of founded the dance team. And we talked for 25 minutes, completely comfortable conversation, laughing, joking. Then I pivot and I do ask a question about the fraternizing between the dance team and the team. And silence. Oh. She answers, but it's like very uncomfortably. And then I ask another question that is a little bit more targeted about Patrick and how that happened specifically and how the team reacted to it. <laughs> the person more or less said, okay, I need you to know something. Like, I know you have a job to do. You've been totally respectful. You're asking questions. It's your job. You're a journalist. Um, I'm very tight with Patrick from the standpoint, like he introduced me to my current husband. I had a wedding and Patrick was one of four people that was there. We actually waited to have our wedding until Patrick could get free on the road from his coaching job to be present for the wedding. So more or less, I took that to mean like, as soon as I get off the phone, I'm telling Patrick that this was your line of questioning. So Georgetown shut down every inquiry I had after that. It wasn't right after that, but I, I got the impression that someone had kind of routed the idea that I had started asking questions that from that person's perspective were uncomfortable or not softball questions. Cause I don't think it was out of line to ask them, but you and I, I actually remember approaching you at one point, Jeff, where I was like, have you done reporting before? Like if you had this situation, would you go to the player first? or the person first that could like tell you more about the player. You're like, go to the player, then go to the person. And then if you get something, then go back to the player. Yeah. I was like, damn, I didn't know that part. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, kind of, I guess that's a little of a rookie mistake. <laughs> <laughs> first time. I, now I know. <laughs> Spike, and it was funny because Spike Lee and I were talking the other day, but he was asking me all sorts of questions about how I did stuff and why I did certain things. He was like, did you, did you give thought to like not including the stuff about Patrick? And obviously Spike is really tight with him and a lot of those Knicks. And I was like, I don't really know that I gave thought to not including it. Uh, it it's already out there. And, you know, and I said, and, and he, he asked me like why I included it about the stuff with Patrick and the extramarital affair. Um, and I said, you know, I think I was writing a chapter about how everything was coming apart for him. Like it probably had to have been like the roughest year and a half, two years of his life. That's part of it. Like losing your marriage you know, one month after you shatter your wrist and have a career altering wrist injury, like that's part of it. And he was like, 
actually he was like, I agree with you. <laughs> I, was like, I was a little bit thrown off by that because again, he's very tight with Patrick. So I, I, I could appreciate that. But that, yeah, that rookie mistake. And now I know if I if I have this a second book, if I write a second book, then now I know. The thing is, you uh you have to write about it. Like you can't. Yeah. It's sort of like uh, years ago, a Bill Cosby biography came out and the author mentioned nothing about all the stuff we'd learned about Bill Cosby. And wow. guy's basically reputation was destroyed, you know, and you would never buy a book by that guy again. And it's just, it's not a pretty part of the job and it doesn't make you happy. Like people think that you and I and folks in our shoes enjoy writing about that stuff. I personally no. hate writing about that stuff. I just know it's so people. uncomfortable. It's yeah. so uncomfortable. Yeah. But you have to do it. Otherwise, like what, what's the point? We're, we're not in this to uh geography. It's like, that's not part of our job. Someone does it, but it's not us. And uh, it's not, it doesn't make sense to <laughs> interview hundreds of people and then ignore the stuff that makes them human. And it, I mean, it's also, that's the way to think about it is people view it as a flaw or a negative character trait or, okay, it probably is negative from the way it's going to be perceived, but that's also part of who they are. And I mean, multiple people will tell you that about whether Patrick or, I mean, it's also most probably athletes. So it is what it is, but it's, you know, yeah. So I thought about it, but it's like, no, I, I feel like if I'm writing a book and I'm using flagrant in the title, you know, you can't completely shy away from the stuff that makes them that way. So um, I'm not putting words in your mouth. I'm saying this as me, Jeff, not as you, Chris, the Knicks are the worst organization for the media I've ever seen in my life. And they're just a train show and a train wreck of awful. And I wonder, um, did that impact you at all? Oh yeah. No, it, it did. Um, I mean, man, you read this, so I, I had what I thought was just a fun anecdote, man. Like, essentially, the Knicks were so popular. I have a chapter that opens basically talking about how hard it was to get Knicks tickets during the 90s. And I, I lead it off by basically saying that um, JFK Jr. had been in a relationship with Daryl Hannah, and they had tickets together. Or Daryl Hannah had two tickets, you know, season tickets. So then when they break up, JFK Jr.'s got to find his own. Uh, he asked for tickets through the Knicks, you know, for for some seats, for season tickets. And they say, sure. Um, but they're not even completely clear on the fact, like, is this actually JFK Jr. requesting these? Because he sends the request in, like, such a nondescript letter. Uh, and so they flag it as, like, possibly being JFK Jr., but they're not sure. Somehow they verified it was, but that didn't get, that message didn't get relayed to the person that was actually seating him. So they ended up giving him season tickets, but they were in the 300 level for JFK Jr. Right. And I'm like, that's wild, first of all. And, you know, I, I get the backstory from the team president who, you know, essentially gave a personal apology for this um, and reaches out to JFK Jr. to apologize for the mistake. And I realized that the person that they're telling me that made the mistake still works for the organization like 35 years later, 30 years later, whatever it was. I'm like, wonderful, you know, and now it's like an executive with the TV side. The next, I'm like, wonderful. And I put a request through. I, I didn't even put a request through. I emailed the person because I had his email. And it might as well have been like a wobbly pass. It gets intercepted by MSG-like communications. And they're like, what are you doing? Like, explain to us what this is. Like, you're writing a book? Oh, what about? Like, who have you talked to? And I'm like, oh, God. Like, and I literally walked them through, like, here's the anecdote that I'm reaching out to this person for a comment on. Super lighthearted, fun, like, 
interesting, something that will make people laugh, easy. And they're like, okay, we'll circle back with you in like a day or two. And then the answer is no. And then it's like, not only is the answer no, but they've probably taken those two days to essentially tell everybody. I don't know that they do, like probably tell people in the organization that they can't talk with me or that it's off limits essentially. So I did put requests through for every member of the organization that, you know, was relevant. So think about John Starks, who still works there like in an alumni capacity, but you know, Jim Dolan's the owner, Alan Houston is now there as like something in the front office. All these people that were really integral in those years that like John Starks is like the most bubbly, happy go lucky. I mean, he had a heartbreaking moment in the finals for them, but nobody has a bad word to say about the guy uh, from a personal standpoint. It's like, what are you concerned about? This was a good era. This was the best era y'all have had in 50 years. Like what? (laughs) So no, to your question, I absolutely got pushback or at least not pushback, but like no, no help whatsoever. And then the funniest thing to me in response to that is like, they were the first people to ask for the book where, you know, my publicity staff, Oh, this person would like your book. This person would like your book. There's some film people that want your book. Oh, the Knicks want your book. Can, should we give it to them? And I'm like, they, they can see it when everybody else does. Cause to me, I don't want them to be completely blindsided by everything. But then again, they're not because I gave them, you know, emailed questions after they never responded to me requesting these people in the first place, emailed questions to literally all these people that didn't talk to me. So it, it, it's just so silly because it's like they're in defense mode, but you would almost help yourself more just by playing ball. It humanizes people more to have those stories out there. It's fun, but no, you've dealt with it. You know, that's why you even asked the question. The circa 1990s reply I would give to the Knicks is blow me if they were asking me for a book. <laughs> yeah, no. I yeah, yeah. I mean, and they got one eventually. It was just like, no, we don't need to do them any favors by giving the one super early. Like there's no benefit in doing that. So Wait, so it, it is what it is. They would not let Starks talk. That is. And I approached Starks personally first, where I think I went through like his, the person that runs this foundation. She said, he's happy to talk, but you have to get the sign off from the Knicks, which is like the kiss of death when you're told that. So I tried to go around that. I did ask the Knicks. They're like, oh, OK, we'll get back to you. No response. I, I mean, I know I could go into it more. I won't. But it's it's just it's a little silly because. When I covered the team, and I always wonder this, like as a beat writer, I covered the team from 2012 to 2016 for the Wall Street Journal. Still, you know, actually, like the communication I had with Phil for this book stems from the fact that I had communication with him when I was on the beat, when he was the president, because he and a number of other people in the organization would go out of their way to say that they respected the way, like they were like, you're not easy on us necessarily, but we'll deal with you because you're fair. And you do at least have some thoughts of the way you're analyzing the team will at least deal with you. Uh, and the team was horrible. And I was very actively criticizing everything, but they would deal with me. Uh, and so that's the thing is like, I just kind of feel like it, it'd be one thing if I gave them reason to suspect that I was just going to be killing them for everything. But like, you can't, why would you kill a team? I have Mike Wise actually said that to me in this book too. He was like, it's crazy that we killed everything during the 90s as writers, like every move the Knicks made. And like nobody realized how good <laughs> we as writers had it with that team. Like they were a really good team. They came very close to winning titles. They made mistakes, certainly. But like, look at them now. Um, and it's just so weird that like I'm writing about a good era where they were a good team. Like what 
there might have been little things I would find, and there are certainly things that I criticize in the book, but it wasn't going to be to the extent that it is now. You do yourself more of a favor by playing ball, but whatever. One thing that really bothers me about that is, uh, like, John Starks is the best example. History isn't really going to remember John Starks in any major way, just because there are a million John Starks who come along. You know, there just are. There are a million John Starks who come along. There are a million, even Rolando Blackmans who come along. Like, those guys come, and they go, and they're excellent in the time. And to give this guy an opportunity, like, here's an opportunity, John Starks. I'm going to write about you, John Starks, in a book that's going to sort of honor the 90s Knicks. And this is, this is great for you. 20 years past your prime, I'm going to talk to you. And all I need is the Knicks to say, yeah, you can talk to this guy, of course. For them to say no, it's just asshole-ish. Like, there's no good reason to not let John Starks talk to a reporter about his heydays of basketball player. None. And I think the thing that frustrates me, man, I don't know if you deal with this. It's probably just my trauma from having trouble with it. The weird thing is, like, if you look up and down YouTube and, you know, different, you know, Apple uh, and iTunes and stuff, and you look at, like, the podcast appearances he's done and the interviews he's done, like, he'll, he'll do interviews with a lot of the smaller places. Um, and, like, the, you know, almost, you know how, like, no one ever says no to children when they ask to do an interview. It's, and it's cute most of the time. And so I'm not trying to compare, compare bloggers to children, but like it's the smaller the outlet, it's almost like the more willing. It's like it probably there's less reason to run it through like the MSG chain because it's like, oh, how how harmful could it be? So he does a decent number of interviews like that with people that aren't really reporters. And so it's strange to me because it's like the more professional the reporter is, the less likely you are to actually get time with John Starks even though there's more of a code built in that like I have something on the line here where like, if I mess this up, I'm not ever going to be able to go in the garden again in, in, in like a, in a really messed up sort of way. And I already was in the garden for several years. So it's like, you kind of know who I am. You know enough about who I'm about. So I don't know. You don't, you don't want to have to prove yourself more than you already have. But to me, I feel like there's enough of a track record there. It would have been great. Like I, I felt like I had enough good stuff on Starks anyway, but it was crazy. Like, you know, Spike was asking me that question on the phone the other day. He was like, who all did you not get? And I was like, Spike, if you take the cover of my book and you look at who's on it, I did not speak to a single person on it. Anthony Mason passed away. Charles Oakley has a book coming out three weeks after mine, so there was no inclination to talk. Pat Riley is Pat Riley. I told you the story about Patrick Ewing, and the Knicks said no to John Starks. So... It's really crazy to think about that. And it's like not something I'm proud of necessarily. Like as a reporter, you want to get everybody. You also realize a lot of people are just going to say no. It's just part of how it works. Um, but you are proud that you can fill in those gaps as well as you possibly can. But it's just it's just silly in some cases. Like why wouldn't you talk for someone that does a lot of interviews anyway that is good with the media anyway? It's, I don't know what the fear is a lot of that. But. It's exasperating. And I will say um, I used to worry more about that when sports radio had more of an impact on this all, because inevitably you'd be promoting the book and they would say, some guy would be like, you didn't talk to Ewing. You didn't talk to so-and-so. How can you, you didn't talk to Favre. How can you write this? And I do think um, anyone who's done this or has been in journalism understands that it's all about the reporting. And just because you don't get Patrick Ewing, who would have told you mostly the same stuff he's told everyone else, probably, even if you're the greatest reporter of all time, it is all about the digging. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's home from college for the winter break. 
Bradley says I should no longer participate in this endeavor. Who's Bradley? He's the TA in my philosophy class. He wears tweed and went to Harvard. He finds commercialism to be beneath me. How did this even come up? We discussed market control over wheatgrass shots at a charming little cafe by the villa. I mean, has Bradley ever been to RoyalRetros.com? Does he know that you can go there and get all sorts of throwback jerseys and hats right now at low prices, that they're high quality and super comfortable? Oh, father. Bradley's in stod right now, saving primates. He has no time for such trivial matters. You're going hardcore. And here's how I know it. Hardcore with the PR. Because I know it because I had a galley copy of your book. This literally arrives yesterday. Copy of your book. Oh, God. With, with, hold on, do I have it here? I don't. A bookmark. And, wait. Oh, a bookmark I have right here. And you have a video. You actually did a trailer, which. Yeah. Love it. Love, love, love. I'm all in on this kind of thing. How hard are you going PR-wise? Um, hard, first of all. Uh, I probably put too much of my own money into it for what the book paid me. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm not making a dig at that. I'm blessed to had the opportunity to have gotten pretty good money off of this. But yeah, I went pretty hard. I, I, I just didn't want to leave anything left in the chamber when it was over because it's my first book, you know, I, I want it to be memorable. I want people, I want for it to stand out. You never know how people, um, like the, the book trailer, for instance, I asked my publisher, will you guys front the money for this? And they were like, yeah, we'll, we'll front money for like a video. Like, and it was like one of those things where like you post like, you know, you take a video with your own camera and you, hi, I'm Chris Herring and I'm doing a book. Like, they're like, oh, you meant like a video video. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, uh, I don't think that's really what we're capable of. And I'm like, okay, what if I hire someone? Will you guys put the money up for it? They're like, no, because we have video people. And I'm like, but you don't have the video people that can do that. And they're like, well, that's a different sort of video. You have to pay for that yourself. So I was willing to do that just because you never know. Like, I, it was interesting. I asked them, I'm like, are, are you suggesting that it's not worth the return? And they're like, we don't know because we've never really put money up to do something like that. So the video certainly grabs you. And I, I mean, to the point where people were like, is it a documentary or is it a book? Um, and I mean, it's a, it's essentially a movie trailer. Um, so I don't know. Like, I don't know if it'll be worth the return. There, you know, it, there was a nice uptick in sales after we put it out. Certainly people have seen it since. And it's something you can just kind of keep rolling out um, that people see it. But yeah, the PR in general, like the bookmark was something. I, I figured that would just kind of be something that they did. And I, I pushed to do that. Um you know, you just want people to have a reason, anything like you want there to be a jealousy factor. It's it's weird within reason. My mindset was like, OK, give bookmarks to people that pre-order the book by a certain time because they're going to post pictures of it. It's going to make people that don't have those jealous. Um, you do. That's also part of the reason that you have your galleys go out early. Is it so people in the media can hold those books up and say, look what I got. Mm-hmm. And then people see it and they say, oh, I want that. But it's interesting because at a certain point I stopped posting, I stopped retweeting people that were posting my book because I think the difference with my book was it, they dropped the presale link for it in like August and my book is still not out yet. So the tale of like, it's like a five, six month window where people are going to have to wait to get their book. So I had some people saying like, man, this is kind of making me mad that, you know, all these media people and these social media people have your book already and are raving about it. But like I paid for it the day it came out pre-sale. 
and I still don't have it in my head. So it's weird. I think the balance of not trying to overdo it, but doing it to where it's in people's consciousness is difficult, at least when you've got a book that comes out for pre-sale that early. Um, and I'm still not sure why it was, but I guess, you know, the longer you have to sell the book, the better was kind of the way they thought about it. So I, I, I am going really hard with the PR, but I'm also trying to trying to take my foot off the gas pedal a little bit just because I think it annoys people to some extent. But I guess very, it's not a part of it. Very thin and hard to read line between aggressive and obnoxious. Exactly. <laughs> I'm trying not to be obnoxious. I'm trying really hard. I don't find to come to come the day the book comes out though this this coming the, these next few days like I might be a little bit obnoxious we'll see I'm gonna try to keep it in context we'll I mean, the whole thing is like uh, you should be like a book coming out is truly I'm assuming you're not Jewish like a bar mitzvah where I went to a lot of them but I'm not you did yeah. a lot of them and you you work at it and you work at it and you work at it and then you have this moment or I've said this many times in this podcast there's a writer named Lee Montville who said to me years ago. The whole thing about a book release is really unnatural and uncomfortable because you spend two years in a cave, you come out in the sun for a couple of weeks, and then you go right back in your cave. And <laughs> you do have to find a way to enjoy your time in the sun. So be obnoxious as you want for two weeks. It's allowed. Appreciate that, man. I'm, I'm going to try to. It's, uh, you know, I, I, and I don't know. I, I really hope by the time we get your next one that COVID is like a thing of the past. Uh, it's interesting, too, because I, we, we've had the, these ebbs and flows with COVID now and you know I've been to plenty of virtual events and, and different things um, and it seemed like we'd come out of it enough or it, it kind of subdued enough to where we planned a couple of live events in person events for my book uh, to have a couple of people there to moderate and, you know different things really great people in the industry and then a couple of weeks ago you know Omicron just kind of smacked us all on the face I actually had COVID I, I just tested negative yesterday I've been positive for the better part of a week up until yesterday. Um, so thank goodness that, you know, we canceled the events or at least in person, the person nature of it. Um, but, you know, it, it, it sucks. And there's like that half second twinge of like, man, I worked on this book for the better part of two and a half, three years. And now have to do everything virtually as opposed to being able to meet the people that really want to come out and support, buy the book, get a signature. That sucks. But then it's like, there's a very real world problem going on. Like I said, I just got sick. My sister got sick. My girlfriend got sick. My best friend got like, and these are young, healthy people, let alone, you know, my next door neighbor was telling me her father passed away from COVID two weeks ago. Um, someone that interviewed me for their podcast said that her girlfriend's, his girlfriend's uh, grandparents died hours apart from each other from COVID. So it's, it's very real still. There's way more important things in the world to be able to celebrate it virtually even is a blessing. And and not to mention that a lot of people have said, I'm so happy this is virtual because now I can attend. And before, when it was just going to be a signing in New York, I couldn't be there. Um, or I wasn't comfortable going because it was, you know, there's a pandemic. So more people can participate. And it seems like a lot of people want to show love, which is wonderful. So I'm, I'm, I just feel blessed and yep. grateful. Uh, let me ask you a final question. And it's not going to be my typical final question, which is give me the okay. big asshole of your career. <laughs> Um, you mentioned your father, Cedric, who passed somewhat recently. Uh, he was a professor. He was author of multiple books. I'm actually looking critical diversity, diversity in organizations, combating racism and xenophobia, a whole slew of books, vastly different mm -hmm. than sports books, obviously. Um, right. What'd you learn from him about writing? <laughs> he's, he's not going to like this answer. Sorry, dad. Uh, 
I had to be more simplistic in the way I wrote than he did. Now, he, he was an academic. He was a sociology professor. So uh, the way he writes is a lot was a lot different than the way I do. And he always kind of said that, that he was really amazed at kind of how. And there were times where he would almost like kind of want me to write stuff with him or write. He never asked me to write for him. But he was like, I wish I had that, because I think there is a certain point where you kind of get in academia where the writing is for a different audience. And so it's just kind of expected that you're going to know what these words mean. And I would read his stuff and it's like, man, we, we got to put a period somewhere in here. Like, this is a really long sentence, a really long word. And sure, you love that. You just, yeah, you know, but no, he was great. And, you know, I, I think about my, my, my sister called me yesterday because she saw the Spike Lee Instagram post and she her eyes welled up with tears because she was she basically said, do you have any idea how proud mom and dad would be? And I think I have some idea. I, you know, I got a chance to do some stuff. Like I got a chance to become, uh, you know, a lecturer at Northwestern before my dad passed. So like, I got to see that pride from him. I got to see the pride in my mom's eyes when I was interning at the plane dealer, you know, before she passed away. Uh, and just from the way she, I still have in my email box, all my stories that she would send around to everybody she'd ever met. So I know how proud they would be, but, um, this would probably be on a different level. And my mom knew, like, she didn't know I was going to be a sports writer when I was a little kid, but she was convinced I was going to do something within sports. She thought I was going to be a sports agent because she she remembered me memorizing all the baseball cards and the batting averages for every season, for every player. And she was like, that's not natural that he cares this much about that stuff. And so she she had a sense. And my dad, I think, probably why he kept pushing me to write a book because I think they both they both had a little bit of a sense. And so I hope they would be proud. That's oh. that's literally one of the only things in life that I care about at this point is just making them proud from above. You know what I just want to say? And I, I'm, I'm sure they are. I mean, I can't imagine they wouldn't be. It's weird how you become an adult. I swear to God, this is true. Like I, people have taught, you know, I have this HBO series coming out based on a book, right? Oh, that's so exciting. It's so exciting. It's so exciting. It's so, I swear to God, the number one thing I think about is my parents seeing it. Like that is the number one yeah. thing I think. That is the number one thing above anything else. It's weird how even as we get older, that our parents being proud of things we accomplished still sticks with us. Because you, well, you, you, it was your grandmother that you lost this past year, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you think about stuff like that more. And I, I obviously I'm, you know, I'm th- I just turned 35 last month, but when you lose people and certain people, um, you start to think about that stuff more. And I don't know, you, I don't know. Everybody's different. And, you know, not everybody has good relationships with their family. But for me, I, I had a great relationship with my parents. Making them proud mattered to me a lot when I was young. And it's like, you know, they should have had way more opportunities to be proud of me. You know, uh, so I don't know. This this just kind of feels like one of those things where I know they would be and I, I hope they would be. Uh, but it, it, it matters a whole a whole lot to me because I, I felt you, you want to you want to show them that they did well. And, uh, you know. God bless the people that can make it without parents or can make it without having good parents. A lot of people probably managed to do that too, but like I had two really good ones and uh, this is a way to show, you know, that they, 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 they did a pretty good job. At least, at least from a writing standpoint, they helped me out yeah. uh, without even knowing it probably. Yeah. Well, I just want to say sincerely, it's a great book. It's a freaking dogged effort. I hope it sells a so million much. copies and uh, 
Yeah, thanks for and congratulations on your first book. It's a huge deal. You should feel very good about it. Thank you so so much, man. Yeah, like like I've said it, massive fan of yours. So even to join you is just an honor for me. But the fact that you enjoy the book, um, I can't tell you what that means to me. So thank you so much for having me on. I want to thank today's guest, Chris Herring, joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Chris on Twitter at Herring underscore NBA and purchase Blood in the Garden wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Slinging Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make zero dollars for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me today, and remember, keep writing.